Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL in Manchester and Concord, New Hampshire, and available wherever you get your podcasts. As we draw to the close of the year, I want to thank all of our subscribers and regular listeners to the Beyond Politics podcast. In fact, I'm hearing from several listeners that they're getting their year-end podcast wrap-up from platforms like Spotify and discovering that Beyond Politics has become their number one most listened to podcast. And I just want to say we really, really appreciate all of you, whether you're finding yourself listening to Beyond Politics all the time or this is your first time. Well, in the last few months, American politics has become a little mysterious, if not downright confounding. By almost every measure, President Joe Biden and the Democratic Party have had an extremely successful year. Remember, we started this year with an insurrection in the very heart of our government, with armed vigilantes roaming the halls of Congress. We also had a brand new set of vaccines, but almost no Americans vaccinated against a deadly pandemic. Unemployment was still 6.5%. Economic output was hundreds of billions of dollars lower than at the start of the pandemic. Now, fast forward to the end of October. GDP had fully recovered and grown beyond pre-pandemic levels. Employers were adding half a million jobs a month. Unemployment was down to 4.6%, which is really low. And people were leaving their jobs at a record rate because the job market was so good. Wages were up 5% over the year, and Americans had accumulated $2.3 trillion more in savings, with the median household's checking account balance 50% higher than before the pandemic. The U.S. had also carried out the fastest vaccination campaign in our history, and after a painful, wrenching takeover by the Taliban that cost American lives, the U.S. managed to end its longest war, successfully evacuating 124,000 people, including 6,000 U.S. citizens, in the largest airlift in U.S. history. And yet, Democrats running on these successes and contrasting with the disastrous leadership the country had suffered under Donald Trump saw a massive swing of voter sentiment against them. President Biden's approval rating has cratered, and Republican turnout surged so strongly in the New Jersey and Virginia elections that Democrats lost everything in Virginia and nearly so in New Jersey. Some of the smartest minds in politics set out last month to find out why. Eliza Astro is a political analyst at the think tank Third Way. She helped organize this research effort, and she's here to tell us what they found. Eliza, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you so much for having me. It's delightful to have you. I wish we were talking about a more fun topic, uh, a less confounding topic, but I'm glad that we're going to get some answers, hopefully, through you and your work. And you worked, I, I want to say, first of all, the think tank, the, the think tank Third Way is a premier research policy institution in Washington, D.C. I'm not just kidding. Some of the brightest minds in DC and around the country. You also worked with a top polling firm, uh, Anzalone List. What's the G? Anzalone Grow. Um, they're, uh, they're fantastic. John Anzalone has been a guest on this podcast. He was President Biden's lead pollster during the campaign. So you're bringing some serious intellectual firepower to this effort to sleuth out what's going on. First of all, in doing this investigation, you chose to do focus groups rather than traditional polling. Why did you choose focus groups? What, what's the value that you get out of that method? Yeah, so focus groups are qualitative research. Um, you talk to a group of about 
six to eight people. We did these virtually over Zoom for about two hours. And you get to ask them a whole range of questions about what they think about current political issues. And so sometimes focus groups, they're not statistically significant the way that polling is, where you ask thousands of people questions, but they're really valuable when you have a situation like in Virginia, where you have so many questions and you don't totally know where to start. So you just can talk to people in this open-ended way for a couple hours and really probe what they're thinking about and what they're concerned about. And so often it's a good way to start and then maybe you'll do quantitative research later and you'll have a better idea of where voters are at and what kinds of questions you should be asking in quantitative research as well. So it's, it's a really good way to, you know, it has its drawbacks in that you're only talking to about 20 people. We did three focus groups of about six people each. So it was only 18 people, which obviously is not that many, but you get a really, you get a lot of depth in terms of what people are thinking about um, around politics and around all of these issues. So is the way to think about this, that you're sort of like a scientist trying to tackle a big question that's you know, hard to wrap your, your, your brain around. So you start by trying to figure out what could be going on in this, as you say, qualitative sense. You, you draw people out and get them to use their own words about what's in their heads and how they react to, to certain prompts. Then you can go in with statistical tools. And so when you, what you ultimately do is you kind of put different pieces of evidence together yeah, totally. And when you do polling, you know, polling is really expensive and you have a limited amount of time. You have maybe an 18 minute survey or something and each question takes up time. And so you really want to make sure that the questions that you're asking are going to get you valuable results and are in touch with where voters actually are. So starting with focus groups can be a really good sort of starting point to figure out where those voters are and, and what we should even be asking about, what questions we should be asking, what themes are important. Um, and you can kind of go from there. Well, and, and I just want to say, you know, with a caveat up front, obviously, with any time you talk about polling or, or qualitative research or, or any piece of evidence about what's going on, it's subject to all kinds of, well, you know, there's with polling, we're very familiar with there's a margin of error. There's all kinds of, I did a whole article about this, why you shouldn't trust polling at face value. So I think all those caveats are understood. But what you and the team at Third Way and ALG are doing is this kind of whole picture look. So you're starting with, with a focus group, but you're not just leaving it there and taking it at face value. You really are drawing in other pieces of evidence to try and bring together a coherent story. And you did that. You created a memo that summarizes your findings and bolsters them with other pieces of evidence. And you've gotten a lot of coverage for that work. Yeah, totally. And I mean, our purpose here is that we want to help Democrats do well in the midterms. And so we don't have, we didn't walk into this with a ton of preconceived notions, because if you go into it with preconceived notions, then you're going to do a worse job of helping Democrats win those elections. You have to just take people at face value as much as you can in order to get the most out of that research. Right. I mean, first of all, you don't want to lead the witness and you don't want to fool yourself because the last thing I, I mean, I think the important thing about a process like this is to really look in the mirror and make sure it's clear. And if the answers are painful, that's kind of a good thing. So, all right. I think we've caveated this up front enough. Democrats who are listening to this. Some of these answers may be things that you don't like to hear. I'm super curious about what you found out. So 
What's sort of the headline from your focus groups? What did you find? Yeah, so they were tough to listen to, for sure. Um, so I can start by talking about some of the national issues that we got a sense of and then get into some Virginia specific stuff. So we started off by asking people sort of what are the biggest issues that they're facing right now? And almost everyone said that polarization and division was the number one issue. They're really, really frustrated by, you know, they feel like we're fighting all the time and there was a sense that they don't even know what we're fighting about. It was this whole back and forth about like, we're fighting about like, what color is the sky or like, I, they just didn't really have a sense of why we're fighting so much, but they're, they're sick of it. Um, and then when it comes to the Democratic Party, we found that our brand is pretty weak and people don't really know what we stand for. And whatever it is, it's not the economy. And so people are concerned about jobs, they're concerned about prices. But when we asked them what the Democratic Party is focused on, they could only really name some social issues. They talked about paid leave and free community college, which are great things, but the economy was their number one issue. These core economic issues were their, their number one issues and they didn't really feel that we're talking about them at all. So that's a big problem um, when that's the number one issue. That has got to be pretty frustrating. So let me let me just read this back to you because I, you know I did that open and I'm like, I, I mean, I, I'm sort of reminded, oh boy, I'm about to date myself here. But <laughs> back in 1988, oh, I've just turned off half our listeners. Back in 1988, Saturday Night Live did this great sketch parodying the presidential debate at the time, Michael Dukakis, George H.W. Bush. Boy, I mean, that seems like a pretty benign debate right there. Like two guys were not terrible. And in the middle of it, George H.W. Bush goes into this crazy rant that, that makes no sense whatsoever. And the Michael Dukakis character says, I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. And so Democrats have to feel to your first headline point that, wait a second, Folks, we're running against Donald Trump here, right? Like this is a choice here and there's us versus Donald Trump. And yet what you're finding is that voters aren't seeing that. It's like the old advice, never get into an argument with an idiot because onlookers may not be able to tell the difference. We think it's like, great, this is the best fight in the world to have. It's one of the most hated people in the world. All voters out there are hearing is the fighting and they're, and they're missing the positive stuff we're trying to say. Yeah, uh, kind of. Yeah. I mean, I think that people are really fed up with politics and just because they don't like so these voters, all of them voted for Biden in 2020. And then in the Virginia election, some of them voted for Glenn Youngkin and some of them almost were, were um, unsure about who they would vote for. And then at the last minute decided to vote for Terry McAuliffe. So it was a mix there. All of them hated Trump and all of them were thrilled that Trump is gone and all of them, if they would have to vote again, would vote for Biden again. So they're not, these are not Trump fans, but they were still not happy with where we're at in the country. And um, they sort of felt that we'd gone from one extreme to another and are just really frustrated with politics in general. Well, that's really interesting that you focused in on, no pun intended, that that subset of voters, because it suggests that these are, these are people who are quite gettable. They're open to the argument of Democrats can certainly do a better job than Joe Biden and, and they'd be open to Joe Biden and the Democrats in general, but that's not where they are right now or they're finding it really painful. And maybe that gets into your second point, which is we think we're focused like a laser beam on the economy. That's not what voters are hearing. It's We think what we're saying one thing, they're hearing something entirely different. Why do you think 
That is, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of weird because when you read polling about, for example, Joe Biden's Build Back Better bill or the infrastructure bill or the American Rescue Plan, pollsters tend to break it up into, all right, we, we know you don't necessarily as a voter know what's in there, but let me tell you, let me prompt you with, with one piece of it. Do you like universal pre-K? Is that something you support? Yes. All right. So people like the pieces of these things. Are, is what you're finding that voters are with us kind of on these narrow slices of issues, they just think we're a bunch of woke socialists from Neptune? woke socialists from Neptune. I would say, well, there, there are a few things going on. I think that first of all, Democrats really like to do this thing where they say like, this thing is the economy, like paid leave is the economy or college, free college is the economy. And that's true. I mean, these are kitchen table issues, they're, they're economic issues, but just saying that these things are the economy doesn't necessarily resonate with voters. When, think, when voters think about the economy, they're thinking about really core economic issues like jobs and prices um, and, so, and their cost of living. And so just telling people what the economy is doesn't necessarily work. And that doesn't translate to voters as us focusing on the economy as much as we wish it did. And so I think that we may perceive ourselves as, as laser focused on the economy, but voters may not think that that as well. And so we really do need to be talking about these economic issues that voters are, are most focused on right now. Um, not just, you know, what, what we have in, in the Build Back Better or what we want the economy to be about. And so I think that people are, are going to be, you know, what's in Build Back Better, we can sell those things and those things are important. And, you know, for the most part, people are on board with what's in the bill, but we also need to make sure that we're really speaking to voters' current most salient economic concerns as well. That's really interesting. So Democrats, part of the reason they think that they're talking about the economy is that, it, it, as you say, it's true that childcare so that we can increase particularly women's labor force participation and get some of the 2 million American women who have dropped out of the labor force since the beginning of the pandemic back into the labor force and how that would help all of us. That seems from any rational reading like, yeah, that's a core economic issue. But what voters think about is a little different. And so even if we're finding in polling that yeah, Democrats enjoy an advantage on that particular slice. We're, we may be kidding ourselves when we say we're thinking, we're talking about the economy because what we really need to be talking about is more jobs, more opportunity for you, lower gas prices for you. It's, it's like the old uh, campaign advice. People don't think about rates. Think about, they think about bills. So are your bills higher? Are your bills lower? That kind of thing. Is, is, is that sort of the the mental gap that we need to bridge. Yeah, totally. And one thing that Democrats also do in messaging a lot, which is frustrating, is that often Democrats, so in our focus groups, a lot of these voters felt that Democrats are really focused on fairness and, and equality, especially for marginalized groups, which is a good thing. And they weren't opposed to us focusing on those things. Um, but they did really get a sense that, you know, we're focused very much on groups, on specific groups. And in our messaging, often we, we narrow in on groups. So we say that this bill is going to be really great for 
this particular group or this particular group and this, these marginalized people. And what we actually find is that really universal messaging, more universalist messaging that says, this bill is gonna be good for everyone or gonna be good for working and middle-class people, which is a much broader category of people. That messaging resonates a lot better, including with voters of color. And so Democrats, I think, should really try to use more universal messaging when talking about these pieces of legislation to convince people that it's really for them and not for these specific interest groups that we may have. That's another really fascinating point. It really resonates with me and with a point that David Shore, the noted progressive data expert uh, polling analyst has made, uh, including on this show on Beyond Politics over the summer, he pointed out that in 2016, Hispanic conservatives, these are, these are people who are ethnically Latino, Latina, but ideologically they're, they're more conservative. In 2016, those folks voted for Hillary Clinton by 20 points. But in 2020, they voted for Donald Trump by 30 points. That's a massive swing. So kind of the piece that fits together there is that voters themselves are thinking less in terms of, hey, I'm part of an ethnic affiliation group. I'm more part of a, here's, here's how I see the world. Here's, here's how I see the economy. Here's how I see social issues. And that's what resonates with me. And I'm not necessarily gonna, gonna vibe to a message of, well, here's, this is why this is good for you, just because you're Latino, you're Black, you're Asian American. Totally. And people inside democratic politics often find, so that there's a lot of research that's been done about how advertising political ads that are most appealing to political insiders, especially in the Democratic Party, are really alienating often to the median voter and vice versa. The ads that appeal to the median voter that use kind of really universalist and patriotic language to people on the inside of democratic politics that seems totally sappy and outdated. But those kinds of messaging, it really works and it works with a whole range of demographic groups. It works with voters of color, it works with white voters, it works with working class voters. Um, so I think that even though to people who are on the inside of politics, that kind of messaging seems, seems sappy and seems like that's not how we talk about politics now, it actually resonates a lot better with the majority of voters. I, wow, I find that fascinating. And I, I'm really tempted to put you on the spot with something here. Look, I can't help noticing that you are sort of the rising core of the Democratic Party yourself, right? You're, you're younger, you're on the younger side um, and uh, female. And so one of the points that David Shore has been making is that this is part of, I'm not saying you yourself, Eliza Astro, are the problem. It sounds like you're very much part of the solution, but that this generally is part of the problem, that the people who are running Democratic campaigns and Democratic politics are speaking in terms that appeal to their generation and in ways that that kind of vibe with them, not so much to, in the ways that the bulk of American voters find, you know, palatable. And that's that's sort of part of the core problem here. Yeah, I mean, so your first question was whether younger people are the problem. And to that, I just want to say no off the bat. And I think that, you know- Come on, can't I blame you? <laughs> That's not fair, no. Um, <laughs> well, 
I mean, the, the whole thing with like Twitter is not real life. We say that all the time a third way. And that's the case with younger people too. You know, young people are much more complicated than, you know, the, the stereotypes about what millennials or Gen Z are really like. And so, you know, not all young people are, you know, sunrise activists. Like it's just, it's just not the case. And those are often the people who are really loud on social media. And since my generation is so online, those voices are even more amplified on social media um, and, and in the media. But that, that doesn't necessarily represent my generation as a whole. So, and, and like there are whole, you know, whole swaths of young people who just have, have conflicting political views. I mean, like how many people like young men listen to Joe Rogan? Like that's a whole swath. Like it's this generation, young people are complicated and it's not, it's not just um, that we're all progressive activists. Well, that is exceptionally fair and uh, actually a, a, a sterling defense of the Gen Z and millennial set. I, I think you win this round. Um, <laughs> let me ask you a slightly different question, though, because we really did focus in the first part of the show on these gaps that are developing between what Democrats think they're saying, what they think they're focusing on, and what voters are hearing. Clearly, at least in these recent races, it's not all just... Democrats not doing a great job talking. There's also clearly some stuff that Republicans are doing that is resonating with voters. What are Republicans doing successfully right now? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, I think that, you know, right now voters are not that happy with the economy and not that happy with how things are going in the country. And so they're going to blame the party that's empowered. And so there's a limit to how much we can message our way out of these things. And so to some extent, you can't just say like, oh, the Republicans are doing a super great job because Biden's approval rating isn't that high right now because people just aren't that happy and they're gonna blame the president and they're gonna blame the Democrats because we have a trifecta. Um, but there is some messaging from Republicans that does really work. Um, so we, the third way has this new super PAC called Shield PAC um, that's intended to protect vulnerable House Democrats in key swing districts um, in this coming election cycle. And so we're doing a whole lot of research on how to defend Democrats against all of the various Republican attacks that maybe we're woke socialists from Neptune or we, you know, want open borders or all kinds of all kinds of Republican attacks that we know that they're going to come out at, at us with. So one thing that that is really powerful is the perception that we're paying people not to work. Um, so that attack line from Republicans is really tough and we really do have to work to combat it and show how we are really working to get Americans back to work. And then the social issue attacks are, are really tough too. I mean open borders is a tough one and people are pretty pretty fired up about immigration. Um, defund the police, you know, people don't, a lot of people know that Democrats don't really support defund the police, but if you really hammer it in there and keep saying Democrats support defund the police, then it can be really damaging too. So there are a bunch of attacks that, that can be really salient. Let me ask about one particular one that got so much virtual and real ink, which is the kind of nexus of critical race theory plus education issues. All of the post-analysis in Virginia was, this was an election driven by education issues, whether it was the Terry McAuliffe gaffe about parents shouldn't really have a say. This isn't what he was saying, I know. But what voters were hearing is parents shouldn't really have a say in their kids' education, which is like, not great. Let, let's, let's just be clear. That's not politically wise. And then, of course, there was this layer of, this is about the introduction of critical race theory into schools. 
did you talk about those issues in Virginia? And I, it's, I ask this not to overfocus on Virginia per se, but we all know that these elections, these off-year elections in Virginia and New Jersey, kind of become a little bit of a, a testing ground for what the parties are going to do more broadly in the midterm elections a year out. So clearly all eyes are going to be trying to draw lessons from what happened there. So, so did, you, did you probe those issues and what did you find? Yeah, absolutely. So there was a lot, a lot of talk about education in these focus groups. Um, so we felt that, you know, one of the really major themes was education, but actually it wasn't so much focused on critical race theory as the school closures and COVID restrictions. And so I think that we found that the critical race theory stuff did really drum up support among Republicans. So it got Republicans in the rural areas really fired up to turn out to vote. But it wasn't necessarily resonating as much with swing voters who for the most part know that we're not trying to teach critical race theory in schools. But parents, a number of them were really upset about the school closures. And one woman actually directly said, I can't vote for the party that closed my kid's school for a year. So there was a lot of frustration there and just sort of a sense that we're not listening to parents and that parents don't really have control over what's going on with their kids. So that really stuck out to us. That's fascinating in that it, it does, it connects the issue of schools and education more to sort of the, the core issue of how much people feel in control of their lives. And that was, I think, one of the things that we all lost during the pandemic was the sense that we have some agency in our economic lives, in our social lives, in just our freedom to move around. And it, it, the last time we tested this, politically prior to the elections in Virginia and New Jersey was in the California recall election. And that election became very much about mandates, vaccine ma mandates, mask mandates. And what we found in the results was, you know, actually the message of let's, let's just knock out this pandemic, it kind of worked. So to some degree, I could see Democrats overlearning that lesson and applying it do you have any sense from your focus grouping and the other polling that you look at as to where we are now as we face down the, a new variant, Omicron, and who knows, another COVID winter of uncertainty? Where is the public on this kind of core feeling of loss of control, how we fight the pandemic, how that relates to school closures and mask mandates and shutdowns and, and, and all of that? What is the public telling us on that? Yeah, I mean, so I haven't seen polling since Omicron became a concern. And so I don't know exactly where the public stands on, on all of this, honestly. But I think that, you know, there was a sense in the focus groups that we were dismissive of the learning loss that happened from closing down the schools and that we closed down these schools and we didn't feel bad about it. And someone said that, you know, she lived in Fairfax County and in a neighboring county that's more conservative, you know, not that far away, the schools were open and her kids' schools were closed. And she felt frustrated by that. And she really directly blamed, you know, Democrats for having done that because you could see the difference between the Democratic controlled county and the Republican controlled county. So I think that closing down the schools is really, you know, we can't dismiss that as really, really significant for parents and for kids. And we can't explain that away and we can't say, you know, learning loss isn't a big deal or it's not really happening. People really cared about it and people were really upset by it. 
I want to talk about the issues that you identified as really tough for Democrats, things like open borders and uh, uh, defund the police. Critical race theory, I guess, would would fall into that into that mix. These are tough because there's at least a kernel of truth and video evidence that significant numbers of of Democrats, especially on the more progressive end of the party, actually do kind of favor those policies. We're only two years removed from a Democratic presidential primary where most of the participants up on a debate stage raised their hand and said, yes, they favor decriminalizing border crossing, even though that's a policy that in polling, only 46% of Hispanic voters actually support. This is something that is ostensibly meant to appeal to that voter contingent, and it doesn't. So it's clearly not a good idea politically, but there are plenty of prominent Democrats who, who hold that position. So I guess the challenging question for you is, is this brand problem fixable? Are these tough issues something that we really can work around? Because there are prominent members of the Democratic Party who are going to keep saying these things and, and covering this ground. How do we how do we deal with that as a party? Yeah, I mean, it, it is really hard. And I think that with social media and the era that we're in right now in our politics, you know, what Joe Biden says and what Nancy Pelosi says and what Chuck Schumer say, they're not they're not the entirety of the Democratic brand because, you know, a couple um, very progressive lawmakers can say something on Twitter that gets a lot of attention. And so I think that it means that, you know, Democratic Party leadership and the big groups, you know, mainstream groups in the Democratic Party have to be really scrupulous about making sure that we're paying attention to the median voter and making sure that we're paying attention to polling and what people really think on these issues. Because if, you know, progressives are out there saying, you know, certain things we should, we should, um, you know, decriminalize border crossings. And then we, as sort of the mainstream of the party, are uncomfortable saying something like border security or, or feel like we have to apologize for that and caveat it 10 times. Then what comes across to the to voters is, is really unclear or they think that, you know, the only really clear message that they're hearing is from the progressives. And so I think, you know, it's not that we have to become Trumpers on immigration and I wouldn't want that and none of us want that. And there are aspects of our immigration policy that are really popular, like people really support the DREAM Act and a path to, to citizenship. Um, but we also shouldn't be scared to talk about border security without apologizing for it. And let's just build on that for a second. What do you prescribe in terms of how to deal with the Democratic Party brand, kind of repair some of that damage and, and start to get voter perceptions back to where being a Democrat isn't kind of poisonous in so many of these areas that they really need to win. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard, but I think that really paying attention to the median voter and really, you know, there's a dissonance because we were talking earlier about young people who work in politics and the sort of language that people like us use and, and are used to used to using in our circles. It, there's a dissonance between you're trying to communicate with voters and then in your personal circles, you have to speak in a certain way. And so just really trying to remember that the social circles and the, and the very highly educated 
you know, political circles that a lot of democratic operatives work in is not real life and really sticking to that kind of messaging and language that appeals to the median voter and, and to the majority of voters, um, like on a whole range of issues, including these social issues is, is really important. That's interesting. It almost suggests that Democrats need to become bilingual. Um, <laughs> it really is. It's like, look, you went to an Ivy League school or you went to a, I don't know, US News World Report top 50, whatever it is. Um, you know, we, we've got to, it's like we, we've got to reprogram you to uh, just, and, and that's, that's tough. I mean, is it one of the things I, I'm again going to, going to invoke David Shore at a point that he's been making, which is maybe we need to hire different people into democratic campaigns. Maybe, I, I mean, it's, it, it's tough because look, campaign jobs, they're, they're not glamorous. People think that they're, it's like on the West Wing, they think that you sit around. I, I was actually once in a DCCC, boy, this is, this is a deep cut. I was in a Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee training once with James Carville. And he came into the room and he said, most people think that what you do in politics is you sit around, you talk strategy, air quoted that, and uh, you know you sip coffee and I'm gonna clean this up for, for the radio. You've got one thumb in your mouth, the other thumb up your butt. You switch them every half hour and you think you're accomplishing something. Now that's James Carville talking, but I do think that he captured something there in a kind of odd way, which is there is a perception that what, what you do in campaigns, what you do in politics is a lot of kind of high flute and strategy. It is not, it is a lot of hard legwork and it's not glamorous and it's, it's not very well paid. Are we, so I can understand the impulse. We hire people who really believe in it, who, who have the stars in their eyes and are super motivated and God bless them. Like we need young, passionate people, professionals to do these jobs. Do we also need to be hiring people from more of the real world who speak in this language and don't need retraining in, in how real people talk and think. Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, not to say that people who went to, who are from certain backgrounds aren't part of the real world. It's all the real world. But, but yeah, I mean, we need to have diversity in our, in our campaign staffers and at all levels of Democratic Party politics. And that means socioeconomic diversity, that means racial and ethnic diversity. Um, it means, you know, intellectual diversity, people who, who don't all think exactly the same way. And I think, yeah, that's, that's really valuable. And you can connect with people in different ways if you have people from different backgrounds. I wanted to hit on, this is a little bit of a hobby horse for me, but I have the opportunity to talk to a real expert who has just come fresh off of talking to, you know, voters who, who've just gone through this experience and this set of choices. There's sort of been this, this weird dynamic in politics in recent years, where on the Republican side, the way to be successful with Republican base voters is be more conservative. It's like one thing I've made the analogy. It's like you're presenting a choice in Republican primaries between different flavors of vanilla. There's French vanilla, there's good old fashioned vanilla, there's vanilla bean, but it's all pretty much the same thing. You just want to be more conservative. And sometimes people make the mistake that the way to be successful on the Democratic side is the mirror image, be more liberal. And that's just from every, from every investigation that I've ever been a part of or that smart people like you have ever done, that just seems to really, really not be true. So I'm hoping that we can spike the football on this argument one last time. Can we, can we dispense with the idea 
that the way to motivate the base on the Democratic side is to be more liberal on policy, to appeal to the more activist wing of the party. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. Um, and I, we've seen again and again in, in local elections recently, I'm from New York City and obviously watched the New York City mayor, mayor's race very closely um, and was totally addicted to the pre-election polling there, especially on crime and policing that showed that voters of color, black and Latino voters in the city wanted either more police or the same number of police that we have now. And it was really white liberals who were driving the um, pro defund the police sentiment in the city. And you saw it in the election results that Eric Adams won. Um, and, and number two was Catherine Garcia, who was also kind of a moderate candidate. Um, and you saw it in Minneapolis too, with the um, defund the police ballot measure, where in the um, predominantly black wards, they were less in favor of the defund measure. And in the predominantly white wards, they were, you know, that was driving much more support for the measure. So yeah, absolutely. I think that there's um, a lot of, you know, very outspoken white progressives, especially on social media, who um, can tend to speak for what the base of the party is. And it's, it's damaging electorally and it's, it's morally wrong. It, it's not right. And so I, I totally agree with you. There are different sectors of the base of the Democratic Party and they're all, they, they all have internal diversity. You really can't characterize people just by sort of their ethnic makeup or their socioeconomic makeup. But to the extent that there are tendencies, I mean, the base is, you know, for one thing, black voters are 20% of the base. The core of the Democratic Party is black voters and especially black women who are like the absolute spine of the Democratic Party. And it's a really interesting conversation. By the way, I'm going to preview. It's the next conversation we're going to have with two absolute stone cold experts uh, from Global Strategies, uh, Mario Brossard and Alex Ivey, who have been doing this ongoing uh, research project on black voters in America and what Democrats need to do to help activate and motivate them. And uh, I, I just want to preview that because it's going to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, but Eliza, I want to get your perspective on this. If the answer on turnout is not well, let's get more liberal. That'll excite the base, right? Again, can't stress this enough. That's not true, okay? You don't need to get more liberal to excite the Democratic base. But how do you excite the Democratic base? Because one of the things we saw in Virginia is that Terry McAuliffe actually got 200,000 more votes than he had gotten four years before. Also in New Jersey, uh, you know, same, same thing. Phil Murphy got more votes than he had four years previously. So getting a little bit more turnout wasn't really the problem. It was that Republican turnout absolutely skyrocketed. It was who was showing up. So if you're going to counter that as the Democratic Party, how do you do that? How do you motivate that kind of turnout? Yeah, I mean, so I think Tara McAuliffe had such strong turnout in part because Democrats, for the most part, really hate Republicans and they hate Trump. And so they're going, I think that we're in an era where people, where, where turnout in these kinds of elections is going to be much higher than it was in the past because everything is so charged and the party's negative, negative partisanship is so powerful right now. Um, so turnout is gonna be high no matter what pretty much. But something that we saw in these focus groups was that the voters we spoke to didn't really have a sense of what Terry McAuliffe wanted to do as governor. And 
they actually did have some issues that they were aware that Glenn Youngkin wanted to do as governor. And so they talked about the grocery tax. Youngkin talked about um, abolishing the grocery tax. He talked about raising salaries for law enforcement and for teachers. And that actually really broke through with voters. And so I think that we can't underestimate the power of having a positive message and, and having things that we're really running on that are popular. Um, so we, we're gonna have that negative partisanship. We're gonna have that hatred of the Republican party. And then we also really have to have a positive message to sell to voters that people are excited about. If we were gonna sum up the findings of your, your focus group research and the way you've kind of pulled it together with other polling evidence, is that how you would kind of wrap it all up in a bow? I mean, if, there, if or if there is one takeaway that you'd like listeners to, to walk away with in, in their own kind of political activism, what is it? What, what, what is sort of the, the major thing that you, you hope will stick with people out of your work? Yeah, it's hard to distill down to one thing, but if that's I okay, you can, you can add a few. That, yeah, I'll, I'll accept it. Neatly. So we need to talk about the economy and issues in the economy that voters are most concerned about. And we have to talk about that like all the time. We can't dismiss, uh, we can't dismiss um, voters' concerns. I think that there's a, a tendency in democratic politics that if there is a social issue like the critical race theory debates and, and the schools debates in education um, that is kind of coming out of Fox News or is really drumming up Republican support, we just say like, oh, that's just a Fox News talking point. It's and called the Fox News fallacy. We can't yes. engage in that. Right, yes. right. Um, and we can't dismiss voters' concerns like that. If people are worried about something, even if it came from Fox News or even if it's the result of astroturfing, we still need to pay attention to it because voters care. So there's that. And yeah, and don't under, underestimate a positive message. We really need to have something that we're running on that voters feel excited about. If people want to read the analysis that you did and, and, and dive in a little deeper and really understand your findings, uh, where can they find that online? Yeah, it's up on the Third Way website, um, thirdway.org. I think it's, it's the front page of our website right now. So you can find it there. And the analysis is really interesting. Fantastic. And they can find you online as well if they if they want to hear more of your analysis. Yes, absolutely. You can find me on the Third Boy website or on Twitter, um, Eliza underscore Astro. Well, Eliza, thank you so much. I, this is, it's really interesting, but I, I mean that not just in an academic way. I, I, I mean, for folks listening, I follow Third Way and I listen to them. I, I friends and colleagues who have worked there and work there now and they provide really thoughtful analysis. And I know, I know maybe you consider yourself more of a progressive. Look, it's just, it's worth listening to. I, I think what you guys are providing is sort of a very helpful wake up call for anyone in the Democratic Party who ultimately cares about winning and saving the country. So for Beyond Politics on WKXL, I'm Matt Robeson. Thanks so much. We'll see you in the next episode. And in the meantime, if you want to get us an awesome holiday present, please ask a friend to subscribe to Beyond Politics.